Welcome back to the Frozen Frontiers podcast. I'm your hostess, Tracy Walmer. This is a podcast discussing the history of the North American fur trade from the 15-1600s to the 1840s. I'm a firm believer that the way history is currently taught often gives us a disconnected timeline so that we sometimes have an issue following the trail of impact. An example of this would be the Marquis de Lafayette, who was this brilliant commissioned officer in France at the tender age of 13. He came to the American Revolution as a major general at 19, and he was instrumental in us winning at Yorktown. He then returned home with a paper in his hand that his friend Thomas Jefferson had helped him write. It was called the Declaration of the Rights of Men and of the Citizen, and it was based on our American Constitution and it sparked the French Revolution. Every one of those facts is awesome, but when you look at how one step influenced the next, you can see these events are not disconnected. So today, we're going to look at the history of the fur trade a little differently. If we look at recent events in the news, we can quickly get overwhelmed by the turmoil of these trying times. Riots, racial and civil unrest, international protests for women's and gender equality, and fights against corrupt and overreaching governments. It seems like every day another conflict is being reported on. And every one of these issues happened during the fur trade. They just didn't have the news at their fingertips like we do today. On the opposite side of that coin, every day we are also given news stories on the advancement of technologies, of medicine, and reforms that make our lives so much better. This was no different in the days of the fur trade either. So today we're going to discuss the rebellions, the revolts, and the revolutions and see how they affected the people who lived during the fur trade. Now, if you Google the term rebellion, you'll get a definition that says an act of violent or open resistance to an established government or ruler. Similarly, the word revolt is defined as an attempt to put an end to the authority of a person or a body by rebellion. And the term revolution is defined as the forcible overthrow of a government or social order in favor of a new system. There is, however, another definition for the word revolution. The transition from one process to another, as in the Industrial Revolution. First, let's talk about that first definition of revolution. We're going to look at the rebellions and the revolts that affected the North American continent between the years of 1600 and 1840 and see how they affected the fur trade. Now, there were plenty of revolts and revolutions going on elsewhere in the world, but they're only going to be mentioned if they affected the North American continent. And we're only going to touch on the major ones. And we aren't going to cover the American Revolution itself or the Native American rebellions in this episode because we don't have enough time. They will get their own dedicated episodes eventually. Additionally, this is a very boiled-down version of history, and I strongly encourage you to explore more on any topic that piques your interest. So let's begin. Since the 1600s, European countries have been setting up their new colonies here on this newly discovered continent, and in general, everything was going swimmingly. There were, of course, conflicts with the natives who had been displaced, and there were grumblings of discontent in some colonies about how things should be run. But generally, things were pretty good. And in the colonies belonging to England, all the people were British citizens, and they were generally fine with that. 
They had the benefits of protection of the British military without all those stuffy, overreaching government people in their faces. For their part, the British government had provided the colonists with what they needed and generally did leave them alone, as long as they paid their taxes and their tributes on time. The Crown even went so far as to define a huge amount of protected land for the Aboriginal tribes to live on peacefully. But as the number of Europeans increased, either through new colonists immigrating in or through natural reproduction, the colonists began encroaching on that land that had previously been set aside and labeled by the Crown as being protected for the natives. Well, as you can imagine, the natives weren't happy about this. Raiding parties began patrolling the borders, so to speak, and trying to push the white squatters back. After several minor conflicts and raids on both sides of the border, the colonists declared open season on all natives. Now, when I say colonists, I mean the settlers, their white indentured servants, their slaves, their freed black friends. And when I say natives, I mean anyone with brown skin and black hair, whether or not they were friendly. Since the colonists couldn't tell the difference between one Native American and the next, bands of innocent natives began to be hunted down and slaughtered. And those tribes retaliated by killing masses of innocent whites. Well, King Charles is back in England, sending messages to his governor in the Virginia colony, telling him to get his house in order. So let's meet Virginia colony's governor, William Berkeley. He is one of King Charles's favorites, and he's been the governor since 1642. But now he finds he's in a precarious position. He's trying not to upset the natives who are providing him with this constant influx of fur pelts and making him filthy rich. He's trying not to upset the settlers who are growing tobacco for him and making him filthy rich. And he's trying not to upset his boss, King Charles, who is providing him with his paycheck and making him filthy rich. It's a real quandary. Well, a man named Nathaniel Bacon requested Governor Berkeley get the natives off that protected land so the colonists could have it, and Berkeley refused. Bacon then demanded that Berkeley protect the whites and their assets from native raiding parties, and Berkeley refused. So Bacon then demanded that Berkeley give up his stranglehold on the fur trade with the natives and let some of the colonists enjoy those profits, and Berkeley again refused. So Nathaniel Bacon issued something called the Declaration of the People, where he accused Berkeley of being corrupt, being pro-Indian, monopolizing the fur trade with the natives, and generally being a real jerk. Berkeley told Bacon to get lost, so Nathaniel Bacon gathered the masses. And when I say masses, I mean masses. Thousands of settlers from all classes and races rose up against Berkeley. And when I say rose up, I mean they literally chased him out of Jamestown, Virginia, and torched everything. This is known as Bacon's Rebellion of 1676. At first, the Loyalists and the armed merchants on the ships tried to suppress these rioters, and eventually the British government forces were forced to come in and spend the next several years trying to reestablish peace. Historians have debated what impact this event had on the settlements and on the formation of America. Some thinking it was the precursor to the American Revolution, which doesn't happen for another hundred years, and others saying it was really no big deal. It was primarily a peeing contest between two stubborn frontiersmen, Berkeley and Bacon. But what really matters is how the people of the day saw it. 
The Crown saw this new fur trade as theirs alone, and Bacon was just a troublemaker. The general populace, however, saw Bacon as a hero and a patriot, and that by itself affects how people form the future plans of the new nation, including one Thomas Jefferson, who felt Bacon represented the very ideal of throwing off the yoke of the British crown. On a historical side note, because I am a lover of weird history, there was a plant that was prolific around Jamestown, and some of the British soldiers sent to quell this uprising were using it as a snack, not realizing that this plant was a powerful hallucinogenic called Datura. So for almost two weeks, the affected soldiers were stumbling around, acting bizarre, and were basically just stoned out of their minds. After their recovery, they couldn't remember anything that had happened. This plant was named the Jamestown Weed, which today we call Jimson Weed. So what impact does all this have on the nation? Well, Nathaniel Bacon died of dysentery a few months after the revolt. Other than becoming the poster child patriot for ending England's tyranny, he wasn't really affecting much from then on. Berkeley was recalled to England to let the colonists calm down and get back to farming that lucrative tobacco crop that England wanted to tax the snot out of. But most importantly, the crown, and particularly the Virginia elite class, were now looking at how quickly and easily all these peasants had banded together to rise up against the status quo. And they were scared. They were scared at how well these different social and racial classes worked together. So they instituted the Virginia Slave Code Laws of 1705, which created severe restrictions on how the African Americans, both free and slaves, were permitted to interact with white colonists. This right here is what begins the process of segregation in the U.S. that certainly defines our nation and continues to haunt us today. So between the years of 1686 and 1689, the American colonies in the Northeast looked like this. You had Maryland, Delaware, and Pennsylvania, and everything above that was called the Dominion of New England. This would include the province of New Hampshire, the province of New York, the provinces of East New Jersey and West New Jersey, and the colonies of Massachusetts, Plymouth, Rhode Island, Connecticut, plus a little chunk of present-day Maine. These inhabitants of the Dominion of New England were generally Church of England or Protestant in their beliefs, and they were governed by a radically Roman Catholic man named Sir Edmund Andros. And this guy was extremely unpopular. Now, in all fairness, he mistreated everyone equally, from denying people access to town meetings to rejecting the validity of land titles in Massachusetts, including the actual charter declaring their sovereignty as a state, to hoarding all of the fur trade profits for himself, to insulting and mistreating any Protestant believers. He went so far as to have the British officers of the military intentionally mistreat the Protestant troops stationed there. Well, by 1688, religious leaders in Massachusetts were fed up and began organizing to send a delegate to England to take up their fight in court that chose a man named Cotton Mather. Now, while Cotton Mather is away overseas trying to get somebody's attention, and the governor, Edmund Andros, is continuing to alienate himself from his constituents in New England, the king back in Old England 
is a man named James II, and he was doing the same mean and discriminatory things, also making himself deeply unpopular. So the political parties in England banded together, and they kicked him out. They bring in their own man, William of Orange, and his wife Mary onto the throne. This seat change is known as the Glorious Revolution, because no one had to bleed or die for it to be successful. Andros was already unpopular, but now he was in real trouble since his Roman Catholic backup was no longer in control. He tried to crack down on revolts by exacting control over every aspect of the militia companies. He was exacting harsh disciplines for some even minor grievances. And this caused the militias to mutiny in some areas, and they began to desert. They also began to circulate proclamations announcing an impending revolution. In the wee hours of April 18, 1689, the militia companies began to gather outside Boston. As more and more of them joined, they were getting more and more worked up. Finally, this frenzied militiamen began confiscating the equipment of Andros's men, and they arrested all of the leadership of Dominion of England. Andros himself was eventually captured. So, with Andros now ousted, the different provinces go back to living by the charters they held before he got there. And generally, everyone goes back to living peacefully. So, while the Dominion of New England was being broken apart, another religiously motivated revolution was taking place in the province of Maryland. Up to now, from 1649 to 1689, Maryland had been at the forefront of religious tolerance, and had even passed laws against religious discrimination for all Christians. The Maryland Toleration Act of 1649, said that all Christians were going to be treated equally, and that Catholics were free to worship their own way. But with the Baltimore Rebellion of 1689, Catholics were no longer welcome. In fact, the government was openly hostile towards them. See, Maryland was controlled by the Roman Catholic Barons of Baltimore. A Puritan leader by the name of John Coode, and a former Maryland governor by the name of Josias Fendall, led a revolt against the Lord Baltimore, a man by the name of Charles Calvert, stating that the government was corrupt. A major point of contention up to this point between Calvert and his subjects was how English law should be applied to the Maryland people. Maryland folks felt they should have more autonomy over their lives. They wanted an open fur trade with the Native Americans, and they wanted an open trade with the other states around them. This wasn't permitted under Calvert, who had to make sure he got his cut of everything. And as if Calvert didn't have enough troubles at the time, he found himself in a land dispute with William Penn of Pennsylvania over the border between Maryland and Pennsylvania. That muddled land grant caused Penn to begin building his capital south of the 40th parallel, which would put it in Maryland's turf. So in 1684, Calvert traveled north to discuss this disputed land issue with Penn, and he put his nephew, George Talbot, in charge of the government while he was gone. Except that his nephew was a hothead who stabbed a royal customs official to death, forcing Calvert to make a hasty return back to Maryland to deal with this new issue. Once everything calmed down, Calvert tried to go north again, this time putting his friend Roman Catholic William Joseph in charge who proceeded to stand up on his soapbox and lecture the good people of Maryland about their lack of morality, calling them all a land full of adulterers. 
Now, while all this is going on, William and Mary are put on the throne over in England, and they are decidedly Protestant. The state of Virginia names a new university after their new king and queen, William and Mary College. Other states are openly celebrating the coronation, and England looks over the pond and they see this, and they're quite happy about it. Our man Calvert sent a messenger to Maryland to proclaim the new king and queen, but the man died on the journey. Well, King William and Queen Mary are not happy by the fact that Maryland has ignored them. And because of this, Maryland becomes a royal province in 1691, and it remains that way until 1715, though being a Catholic was still not tolerated. In fact, Catholics weren't even allowed to vote in Maryland until 1718, and true religious tolerance isn't going to return until the American Revolution. But this act of the crown now claiming dominion over Maryland means any fur trade bypasses the colonists and goes right to the pockets of Mr. and Mrs. William and Mary. Add to this the fact that Hudson's Bay Company has now been in business for 20 years on the North American continent, in that part of England's empire in the north, and the cash is rolling in by the fur-bundled boatload. Well, William and Mary aren't going to give up control of that anytime soon, are they? So, while the Dominion of England is being torn asunder, and Maryland is being returned to the Crown's control, New Yorkers are sitting there and they're watching all this turmoil very carefully. They were also disgusted with their lieutenant governor, a man by the name of Nicholson, who suddenly found himself in a very precarious position. Much of his military had been absconded by that guy Andros to quell the uprisings in New England. The remaining citizens were being pressured to oppose anything Catholic, and the governor could see the storm clouds brewing on the horizon. Nicholson knew his defenses were not enough to protect his realm, so he imposed import duties to raise the funds to bolster those defenses. Not a popular move. Then, because he was short on ammo, he began sending his men out to scour the cities for anyone who had gunpowder that he could take. That most certainly didn't win over the hearts of his subjects. Nicholson was also apparently a hothead who at one point made an offhanded comment to one of his commanders stating he'd rather see the city burn to the ground than have someone else in charge of it. Well, this comment was quickly spun into Nicholson's going to burn the city down and the people lost their collective minds. A German-born Calvinist merchant and militia captain named Jacob Leisler had already been an outspoken opponent of Nicholson. So when the militia heard this rumor of Nicholson's impending act of arson, they captured him, and they called Jacob Leisler to come take command. The militia vowed to hold control of the area until William and Mary could send a new suitable governor. Other than difficulties getting the primarily Dutch outlying cities like Albany and Schenectady on board, he seemed to do well enough. He was moderately successful in collecting taxes and custom duties, and he simply arrested and imprisoned those who opposed him. When he formed an expedition to march into New France in the north to establish an open fur trade network, he ordered merchants to open up their storehouses to supply his men. When the merchants refused, Leisler broke into their storehouses and took what he wanted, though he supposedly did repay some back later. And actually, like his New France expedition, his governorship was kind of an unimpressive failure. By 1691, William and Mary had sent their new man, 
a new governor by the name of Slaughter, who ordered Leisler to hand over the government. Leisler refused at first, and when Slaughter doubled down with an occupying force, Leisler tried to negotiate his way out. Slaughter refused to negotiate with quote-unquote mere subjects, and Leisler was, was eventually convinced by his men to surrender. Slaughter had Leisler and ten others arrested on charges of treason and imprisoned. Slaughter then formed a special tribunal to hear the trials of the accused, but Leisler refused to acknowledge the legitimacy of the court, and he refused to enter a plea. He was eventually found guilty anyways and hanged to death, but this instantly made him a martyr for his supporters. His being Protestant gave people the anti-Catholic boost, while his being a merchant and one of the working class gave a boost to those who opposed the elitist anything and boosted those who wanted free trade. And his being German had nothing to do with anything, but it bolstered the anti-British rhetoric that was floating around. So, besides the ongoing turmoil of religious differences, the colonists were beginning to experience this class segregation in a major way. And people were getting fed up with a system that favored the high and mighty colonial officials and their elitist plantation owners. They wanted better economic conditions and free trade for everyone. More importantly, they also wanted a fair system of government. And they weren't entirely convinced that the government overseas had their best interests at heart. In North Carolina, farmers who had been suffering through years of drought, and they were increasingly becoming more and more desperate as their food stores and their profits were depleting. The problem was complicated by the arrival of hordes of English, Irish, and Scottish immigrants, bringing in their own goods that rendered the farmers' good sales unnecessary. Amongst those throngs of immigrants were well-educated lawyers who now put their skills to good use, representing those wealthy deed holders. As things went from bad to worse, the local growers fell deep into debt, and the courts began to take their homes and their properties with the help of these fancy-schmancy lawyers. By 1764, several thousand people from the western regions of North Carolina were grumbling about the corruption and cruelty of the government officials. By that time, the new royal governor, William Tryon, arrived in 1765. They were already on the verge of losing their cool. Well, Tryon building himself a fancy new mansion didn't help his case with the people. And trying to make a good name for himself with the local elites... Tryon backed every terrible thing they were doing, and the people had a serious meltdown. If you look at the demographics of the debate, 5% of the population, those few wealthy elites, held almost total control of the government that ruled over 95% of the population. Not good odds for peace and tranquility. People who wanted things to change were called regulators. They wanted an honest government with a serious reduction in taxation. Those five percenters saw this as a threat to their happy way of life, and they brought in the militia to hunt down and execute the leaders of the regulators. Herman Husband was a Maryland Quaker who served as an unofficial leader of the regulators, though he generally maintained a policy of just winning people over by being a decent human being, while other people were more into causing mayhem whenever possible. Another leader was a man named James Hunter, but neither man condoned the violence that the regulators committed in Hillsborough, North Carolina, 
1768. An angry mob broke into the courthouse and dragged the officials that they deemed corrupt into the streets. They tried to force the judges to hear the cases pending against fellow regulators. And when the judge refused, they beat some of those attorneys nearly to death. They began destroying furniture in the courthouse, vandalizing the walls, and even defecated on the judges and the attorneys' seats. They somehow produced a rotting body of a long-dead slave and sprawled it across the judge's bar. Then the rioters flowed out into the streets, looting shops and destroying public and private property, before heading to the house of a prominent attorney. Here they beat him within an inch of his life, ransacked his house, destroyed his furniture, drank all of his alcohol, and then burned the entire place to the ground. While this one incident is frightening and dramatic, particularly in light of our own recent events, the regulators were generally more of a nuisance than a destructive force. But as emotions became more and more inflamed, clashes broke out in almost every western county of North Carolina. By 1771, tempers were boiling over on both sides. So on May 16, 1771, Governor Tryon led his force of around a thousand men against 2,000 or so regulators at the Battle of Alamance. Figuring their superior numbers would be to their advantage, the regulators ignored the warning from Tryon to disperse. But while the regulators might have had superior numbers, they lacked solid leadership, and they quickly disintegrated when the governor opened fire. Six regulators were later hanged for instigating the uprising, and the rest were pardoned after swearing allegiance to the crown. Tryon's militia then marched through the countryside, making all of the regular sympathizers swear filthy to the crown. In fact, if you're an Outlander fan, you've probably seen this event depicted in Season 5, Episode 7. There you go. While North Carolinian regulars were opposing corruption by force, South Carolinian regulators were upholding the peace. These men were protecting their citizens from hooligans and routing out undesirables and bandits and organized crime. Many of these early codes of ethics are still reflected in South Carolina's laws today. But I hope you can see by now why the colonists were just fed up with the meddling governments appointed by the crown. They were constantly bringing their religious feuds, their excessive taxation policies, and their favorite cronies in to get rich off the labors of the lower class. They were sick of the royal monopolies, particularly when it came to the fur trade and the Indian trade. And because snail mail hadn't really been invented yet, it took a long time for word to travel around the colonies, particularly in the wintertime when travel was treacherous. So when news finally reached them, all of Hades would break loose. Well, back in the north, by 1770, the tensions had come to a head. A British sentry named Private Hugh White, stood surrounded by a mob on the Boston street who began giving him some serious flack. Several other soldiers came to his aid, and the mob quickly swelled to several hundred people strong. The crowd begins to throw snowballs and stones. They're swinging clubs and pieces of lumber at these soldiers. They're taunting the soldiers to fire into the crowd. Against the hold-your-fire order, one of the soldiers did panic and fired into the crowd. A man named Crispus Attucks drops to the ground, and other soldiers panic and fire as well. At the end of it, three civilians are killed outright. Five others are wounded, and 
two of those would later die of those wounds. Eight soldiers, one officer, and four civilians are arrested during the following inquiry. They were charged with murder, and the soldiers were appointed an up-and-coming lawyer named John Adams, future president of the United States. Six of the soldiers were acquitted, two were found guilty of manslaughter, and the four civilians were acquitted. But if you look at this event on the scale of casualties, it isn't as big as some of the other uprising and rebellions. Only five people died. But the colonies up to this point were a proverbial powder keg, and that event was the spark that lit the wick. Educated men like Paul Revere and Samuel Adams used this event to fan the flames of resentment against the crown. Recent inventions like mass printing made it possible for the everyday man and woman to see the propaganda battles that followed. The Boston Massacre is often considered by historians to be that one defining moment that precipitated the Revolutionary War. The Boston Tea Party and all the other conflicts that happened over the next five years are often believed to just be further crumbling of an already shaky relationship. And one of those crumblings is known as the Pine Tree Riot. See, by the late 17th century, Britain had pretty much eradicated most of the large trees that it needed to build masts for ships. And the eastern white pines in colonial New England were just what they needed. So they passed a law in the late 1600s, and then again in 1708, stating that colonists weren't allowed to touch certain trees. The crown then went all over New England, marking all of the best standing lumber for themselves. Most colonists simply ignored the law and took the trees they wanted, figuring it was unlikely they'd get caught. And many of them never were caught. At least not until the deputy surveyor ordered a search of all the sawmills looking for the illegally cut timber. In places like Jostown, New Hampshire, many sawmills who got caught simply paid the fines and went on their merry way. In fact, they were even given their lumber back. But in places like Ware, New Hampshire, the colonists refused to pay the fines. This brought them in direct conflict with the crown. So the man in charge of the Association of Lumber Mills was arrested, a guy by the name of Ebenezer Mudgett. And Ebenezer tells the British soldiers who are holding him prisoner, well, would you look at that? I must have left my wallet in my other waistcoat. If you'll let me go home and get it, I promise I'll come back and pay my bail tomorrow. And they did. The sheriff and his henchmen let him go, then retired to the Pine Tree Tavern for the night. Mudgett did go home, and many of the irate townsfolk were at his house waiting for him. Some offered to pay his bail for him. Others wanted to run the sheriff and his cronies out of town. In fact, that debate continued long into the night. The next morning, while the sheriff is still in bed, Mudgett and his 20 to 40 men, depending on which source you believe, burst into the sheriff's room and hauled him to the floor. And they beat him with tree branch switches. It said one swipe for every contested tree. The men also reportedly assaulted his men and their horses, cruelly disfiguring the horses' faces. One document I read said the men carved their refusal to pay the fine directly into the sheriff's back. Ultimately, the men were arrested and pled guilty, being fined 20 shillings each plus court costs. That's about 15 cents in today's money. For some, 
This extremely light punishment proved their suspicion that British rule was able to be defied with minimal retribution. And it's debated in historical circles that this likely encouraged or maybe even inspired the Boston Tea Party event. In a further act of defiance, those agitated colonists flew the first pine tree flag during the raid. So I feel it was something equivalent to the Texans' come and get it cannon flag. It's at this point, though, that the powder keg explodes. The Boston Tea Party kicks off in 1773. And by April 1775, the American Revolution is ignited. While we're not going to go into depth about the war itself, there is one man I want to introduce you to. It's because of this man that you even have a rendezvous to reenact. Arguably, one of the most important men involved in the American Revolution conflict is a man named Friedrich Wilhelm von Steuben. Von Steuben was a Prussian soldier who had been born, raised, and drilled into the military for his whole life. This man ate, slept, and breathed military position from toddlerhood on, and at this time, the Prussian army was one of the world's best. He finds himself bored in a peaceful Prussia, so he reaches out to his friends in France, and he asks them to get him in touch with the American government, stating he's willing to fight for them. They send him to visit Ben Franklin, who was over in France schmoozing for support for the colonial uprising. Well, Ben Franklin is very impressed. He writes a letter of recommendation for von Steuben and sends him to York, Pennsylvania to meet up with the Continental Congress. The congressmen are also duly impressed, but they tell von Steuben they can't really pay him. He agrees to work for free if they will agree to settle up at the end of the war. And they did. So von Steuben is then sent to meet his new boss, General George Washington. At this point, Washington and his forces are at Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. If you are not familiar with the Revolutionary War or with Valley Forge in general, this is the low point for the Continental forces. When von Steuben gets there, he's appalled at what he sees. The men are in tattered clothing. Some have no footwear. They're freezing in the snow in sub-zero temperatures of a brutal northeast winter. Many sit outside their tents with just a blanket for protection from the elements. Tents are full of holes, barely stitched together, and set up in jumbled, disorganized masses. Piles of human waste and decaying animal carcasses litter the camp. There is no food for the men to eat. What meat they do bring in is being skewered on their bayonets and held over small cooking fires dispersed throughout the encampment. The men are exhausted, mentally dejected, and physically falling ill from exposure. When told to march in formation, these men shuffle along like they're being sent to their doom. These men are farmers and merchants with no concept of how to fight or even defend themselves. They don't know who to listen to when the commanders start to contradict each other, which happened quite a bit since the command level was always trying to outdo each other. So von Steuben sets about to make things right. He takes a hundred men, and he trains them to march, to fight, to drill. He teaches them how to evade capture, how to survive in the wilderness, basically how to eat, sleep, and breathe military efficiency. He teaches them how to use their bayonets as people stickers instead of meat forks. 
He turns them into an elite fighting force. Then he teaches them how to take care of their subordinates and how to teach others all those elite skills he just showed them. Then von Steuben sends them out among the other men to share those new skills that they had just perfected. He establishes a hierarchy of command, with lesser ranks being supervised and supported by mid-ranks, who are in turn supported by the higher ranks, until you rise up the chain to the ultimate commander-in-chief. Then he turns his sights to the administration of it all. After getting over his initial shock at the wanton war profiteering and lack of organization, he completely revamps the system, creating efficient supply networks, explaining how to predict scenarios and prepare for the worst. He gets the supplies flowing into the soldiers again, and the men start seriously whooping some redcoat butts. Had he not reformed the Continental Army, we'd all be speaking with a British accent right now. It's because of guys like this that we won the American Revolution. So how does that affect the fur trade, you may ask? Well, Friedrich von Steuben writes down all of his teaching in a book that he called The Regulations for the Order and Discipline of the Troops in the United States. He sends that book to be reproduced so it can be shared with all the battalions. But that recent propaganda war that the colonists have been fighting has depleted much of the paper in the colonies, and the printer is forced to use some old leftover blue book covers that he had lying around. Well, from that point forward, the book is nicknamed the Blue Book. Not only did it become the manual for shaping up the Continental Army, it established what today's army calls the NCO, or the Non-Commissioned Officer Program. And it laid the foundation for today's military structure. Some parts of it, even today, almost 250 years later, remain unchanged because it was utter perfection. The Blue Book essentially laid out how to have a functional workforce with experienced soldiers teaching inexperienced ones. It laid out how to protect what the workforce will need and how to supply that workforce with those goods and how to transport those goods to where the men are stationed. And during the War of 1812, having this book in your hand likely meant the difference between your military unit living or dying. Little did von Steuben realize how this book would be used. Because in 1812, when a very young recruit named William Henry Ashley enlisted and he got his hands on that blue book, he would take that knowledge to heart. Ten years later, in 1822, when he left the military as a brigadier general, he would put that knowledge to good use designing a supply system that would become the rendezvous. Now, one other impact that the American Revolution had on the fur trade in America is that the resolution of the war itself resulted in a new national border between us and Canada. This forced the British to relocate all of their trading centers farther northwards, freeing up everything south of that border for the American fur companies. Let's skip ahead a few years to what is called the Pennsylvania Mutiny of 1783. The American Revolution is over, and the soldiers now ask Congress, who is meeting in Philadelphia, for their paychecks. The soldiers basically said, pay us, or things will get ugly. And Congress pretty much ignored them. Since the soldiers didn't immediately act on their threat, Congress figured they had things in hand and they went about their business. Two days later, 
Congress receives word that 80 soldiers left their station at Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and joined up with the soldiers stationed at the city barracks in Philadelphia. 500 disgruntled soldiers now hold control of the munition depot within a stone's throw of Congress's meeting place. The following morning, 400 or so of those frustrated soldiers blockaded the state house doorways, and they wouldn't let the delegates go home until they started coughing up some back wages. Well, the famous Alexander Hamilton talked them down, and the soldiers allowed the delegates to leave for the day. But that night, Hamilton holds a special secret meeting of the congressional delegates, who quickly ship a letter off to the Pennsylvania Executive Council asking for protection from these mutineers. The council said no. Some argue that they didn't think the situation was all that serious and that the congressmen were basically just being divas. Others think that the Pennsylvania council figured it would just all blow over. They did, however, agree to meet with the militia commanders and said they would get back to Congress shortly. Well, afraid that the Pennsylvania council would hang them out to dry, these congress members panicked and they fled Philadelphia, moving the provisional capital of the United States, to Princeton, New Jersey. George Washington, meanwhile, hears what's going on, and he sends 1,500 of his now well-trained militiamen to quash the mutiny. He arrested some of the mutineers, and he placated the others and sent them home. Paranoid of another uprising, Congress moved the provisional capital to Annapolis, Maryland, a month later, then to Trenton, New Jersey, a year after that, and finally to New York City in January of 1785. It wasn't for another two years that they would meet again in Philadelphia. And during that 1787 Philly Constitutional Convention, the delegates were still not sure that the Pennsylvania militia would protect them from uprising. So they decided to create a federally protected safe haven to meet in. Today, we call that Washington, D.C. So you can already see that disgruntled soldiers aren't getting paid. But another thing was happening economically here that will come into play. During the war, places like Massachusetts and Connecticut, which were largely farming communities, didn't have much in the way of assets other than the land they tilled. Cold hard cash was really scarce, so they bartered with each other for what they needed. When times were extremely lean, like, you know, during a massive revolutionary war, farmers would have to get their goods on a credit account with the understanding that they would pay it back when times got better. In contrast, the coastal areas like Massachusetts Bay Area were driven by the merchants who were importing goods into the docks from Europe, so they were thriving. Well, when the war ended, those merchants on the bay refused to extend any more credit to the people who lived inland in the agricultural centers. They wanted that cold, hard cash, and many accounts went into collections. The government also decided they wanted taxes paid in cash, not chickens, and the inland agricultural communities couldn't afford it. By now, I hope you can see that this country had a lack of hard currency. In 1787, the new government of the infant United States meets to discuss all of their previous issues. This is where the Articles of Confederation, which were basically the colonists' list of laws, were supposed to be reviewed and revised to alleviate all of the conflicts that these now free Americans had been experiencing. 
but when the delegates sat down to discuss recent events and current problems, something amazing happened. One group, called the Committee of Detail, started drafting out their idea of what the government should look like and what the government should actually do for the American people. And everybody starts doodling out their ideas and debating with each other. But one man, the Pennsylvania delegate, a guy by the name of Governor Morris, wrote these words. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. Okay, so now we have a country by 1783. We've got a constitution by 1789. How are we going to pay for it all? Britain's still being snotty about our insurrection and refusing to trade with us. European countries are trading with us for tobacco and such, but we've got a huge war debt to pay off. And we've seen how cash-strapped this fledgling country is. What is a new president to do? Well... He created the first tax ever imposed on a domestic product, the whiskey tax. His intention was to make some money to bail us out of the financial hole that the American Revolution put us in. Think of it in terms of current events. We're sending money and goods to Ukraine to support their defense. But eventually, they'll have to pay that back. And we're just one of the many countries sending aid. How many years will it take Ukraine to dig themselves out of that hole? The new United States had borrowed money from France and Spain and the Netherlands to fund our revolution. And we had a lot to pay back. Not to mention the country is still in the midst of a scarcity of hard currency. This tax seemed the logical answer to the new government. However, the farmers in western Pennsylvania didn't see it that way. They were quite used to distilling their surplus crops into whiskey, and many of these farmers were the same war veterans who had just fought a very long, grueling war based on the principle of no taxation without representation. And many of them were still waiting for their paychecks. Additionally, if you thought cold hard cash was scarce back east, it was almost non-existent on the frontier where the barter system was king. And if we're being honest, there were other grievances that came into play in the Whiskey Rebellion. The frontiersmen felt they weren't granted the protection of the government from raiding natives. Keep in mind that during this time, Fort Pitt at present-day Pittsburgh is the edge of the frontier. They were miffed that they couldn't use the Mississippi River for commercial navigation because Spain owned the Louisiana Territory at the time, and they were not playing well with others. They wanted more freedom. They wanted more freedom when it came to bartering with the natives. They were confined to certain restrictions by the new colony's laws. The whiskey tax was just the final straw. So when the officials come to collect the tax, the farmers refused. More than 500 of them banded together and attacked the home of the local tax collector, General John Neville. George Washington sent peace commissioners to negotiate at the same time as he was calling up his militia. Then he personally led the force of 13,000 soldiers, and by the time he arrived out at western Pennsylvania, the rebels had all gone home. 
But George Washington did something important here. He proved to the people that this new national government that everyone was eyeing up kind of sideways, half hopeful, half suspiciously, that this government had the ability to suppress violence when it came to enforcing its new laws. And Washington also proved that he wasn't afraid to use it. The whiskey tax was later repealed when Thomas Jefferson came into office, but not before it polarized the government into different ways of thinking, which eventually led to our two-party system. The Whiskey Rebellion also brought up an interesting debate. How much rebellion should be allowed? The Federalist side of the two-party government felt radical protests like the ones that fueled the American Revolution were no longer permissible while the rebels felt they had the right to challenge the government since it represented their interests. And how does this affect the American fur trade? Well, up to this point, Britain had been smarting from their loss of income in the colonies, and the crown had banned all trade with us ungrateful, rebellious peasants altogether. But in 1794, the Jay Treaty reestablished those trade relations between Great Britain and the new United States, meaning we could once again trade with Canada where the fur trade was going strong. Now, this encouraged many immigrants to come to the U.S. to begin a new business, including one man from Waldorf, Germany. This guy, by the name of John Jacob Astor, would make a small fortune trading furs with the Northwest Company in Canada before going on to create the American Fur Company in 1808. Okay, so that was the revolts and rebellions that shaped the nation and the fur trade in general. Now let's look at the revolution that shaped the world, the Industrial Revolution. I know for many of you who are familiar with living history, you already know this, but we actually do have a few listeners that are new to fur trade history altogether, so please bear with me while I catch everyone up. In today's world, where we click a link and hit a button and have an item delivered directly to our doorstep the next morning, it might seem difficult to envision what shopping was like during the fur trade era. So we're going to take a quick trip through time to give you an idea of how monumental the Industrial Revolution was. We'll use Hudson's Bay Company as an example. When they get to New France, they set up trading posts on the bay. If they want to get supplies put in their trading posts, let's say 50 pairs of shoes for their voyagers, they send an order by boat back to their home company in England. This trip is, at minimum, four months long but more likely five or six, and that's provided everything goes right. Weather alone can prolong that into a year-long voyage just to get the order back to the home office. Then those products have to be procured, or in some cases, made. If they're simply purchased, you stick them in a big wooden crate, set it aside while you get the rest of the stuff together. But if they have to be made, you must get the leather, the soles, the patterns for each size that you need, punch the leather, sew them together. One cobbler can make 50 pair in eh, a month and a half if he's experienced. But let's say he has them pre-made, and now he can just instantly drop them into the shipping crate. Then the whole kit and caboodle is sent back to Canada. There's another five or six months. We're already at more than a year's time, assuming the weather goes easy on you on the voyage back. So for Hudson's Bay to outfit their voyagers with shoes, just shoes, they must order them a year in advance and pray they've got the sizes they need. 
Remember, this is before the era of half sizes. The alternative to this is to have the locals make the products. And Hudson's Bay and other companies like Northwest Company did just that. The local Métis people were employed to produce a lot of the products that Hudson's Bay needed, which is why those amazing woven sashes became synonymous with the Hudson's Bay Voyagers. From raw pelt to finished moccasins, I can produce a decent pair in about three weeks. That's just one pair, and that includes all the tanning and everything else. And they're not going to be as good as a master leather worker's moccasins would be. Okay, so if the local workforce is going to make 50 pairs of shoes, they'll probably be looking at a month to get the shoes made. Add more time to truck them out to the administration centers by canoe. My point is, in case you haven't gotten it yet, it took a long, complicated process and an even longer amount of time to buy stuff. And if items had to be shipped in, it could be up to a full calendar year or two before you even saw your order. So beginning about 1760, Great Britain began to go from hand-creating items to using machines to produce those same items. This allowed them to produce multiple items at one time that were uniform in size and quality. It started with the textile industry, taking their imports of cotton, flax, and wool, and turning them into large rolls of fabric that could then be cut into smaller bolts and shipped all over the world. Other machines then took those bolts of fabric and cut out the pieces for linen and cotton shirts. Other machines sewed those pieces together. Instead of one shirt being produced in a few weeks' time, mass manufacturers could have 50 made in a few days. And because they could manipulate metals now on a grander scale, rather than just one overworked blacksmith at a forge, they could create machines whose parts were interchangeable allowing for less time down when parts are being swapped out. The impact this had on the ladies living in the East who could now buy bolts of pretty fabrics for cheaper than that hand-woven stuff they would normally have to make, or for the men who can buy machine-punched iron nails for less than that hand-forged ones that he usually orders from the smith. The impact is without a doubt huge. Fur traps made of a shaped iron, no longer had to be created one at a time at a blacksmith's forge. They were able to be stamped out of a sheet of metal and assembled, so now the parts were able to be replaced in the field if one broke. Kettles, frying pans, gun barrels, they were all poured into sand-casting molds from great foundries. In fact, guns were standardized, and they were created to become more precise and accurate. Since these items were cheaper to create, they were cheaper to purchase. And speaking of iron, at least in the east of North America, rail systems were being created to transport trade goods back and forth, shortening the time people had to wait for their deliveries. Canals were being dug to barge goods from one major population hub to the next. This would not help William Henry Ashley get his trade goods from St. Louis to Idaho or Wyoming but it did help him get his supplies together considerably faster than it would if he had to produce everything himself. In fact, it's the only reason he could supply the rendezvous consistently. As you can see, the Industrial Revolution made the creation of products that everyday people wanted to buy much, much easier. But it would be a double-edged sword for our trappers and traders. 
By the early 1800s, those same machines that made frontier life more bearable also made silk easier to manipulate into sheets. When you combine that with the declining beaver populations, this meant that the fashion trend of beaver fur hats was being replaced by these mass-produced silk hats, which were much easier and cheaper to purchase. While the Industrial Revolution certainly made life better for the trappers and traders, it also essentially put them out of a job. Most historians and rendezvous-era reenactors agree that the fur trade ended around 1840. And although Hudson's Bay Company would continue to export fur to Europe into the, well into the 1870s, most of the smaller fur companies would essentially be out of business, or more likely absorbed by the larger companies, by the 1830s. Like how the Northwest Company was merged into Hudson's Bay Company by 1821. The Rocky Mountain Fur Company dissolved in 1834, while the American Fur Company held out until 1847, before it dissolved. The Russian-American Fur Company of the maritime fur trade held out the longest until the sale of Alaska to the Americans in 1867. They were officially dissolved in 1881. But only Hudson's Bay Company would survive from the year 1672 today, which we will cover each of these fur companies in dedicated episodes coming soon. Hopefully through this episode, you can see how the events happening on the North American continent and even around the world influenced the fur trade. From early colonists trying to break into the fur business with Maryland's indigenous populations, to a, a wet-behind-the-ears army recruit who creates one of the most magnificent trading systems using an old army manual, to silk being mass-produced in England that ended in an incredible era. All these rebellions and revolutions shaped our country and our rendezvous to what it is today. And with that, another episode comes to a close. I know this one ran long, and I thank you all for hanging in with me. Please check out the website at fursandfrontiers.com for other episodes and visit again in a few weeks for the next installment. Have a great weekend, everybody, and keep your powder dry. Mm-hmm.